Welcome to Term Talk, a Federal Judicial Center video podcast. Each term, we discuss Supreme Court cases that are most important to federal judges. Joining me is Mr. Paul Clement, former Solicitor General of the United States, and Professor Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at New York University Law School. Thank you both for being with us. There were two First Amendment cases this term with important implications for federal judges. In Mahanoy area, school district versus BL, the court for the first time considers whether public schools can regulate off-campus speech. And in Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, the court looks at the burden disclosure requirements have on the free on the right to free association. Melissa, let's start with Mahanoy area school district versus BL. What happened here? So BL, like many teenagers, had a terrible, horrible, no good, really bad day. She failed to make her school's varsity cheerleading squad, and like many cheerleaders, she took to social media to express her displeasure. She fired off some salty Snapchats in which she denounced in very profane terms cheerleading, school, softball, and just about everything. When school administrators saw her chats, they suspended BL from the junior varsity cheerleading squad for a year, which prompted her to sue on the ground that the disciplinary action violated her First Amendment rights. In doing so, she relied principally on Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District, the landmark 1969 Supreme Court decision, which held that the First Amendment applies in the public schools and school officials cannot censor student speech unless it disrupts the educational process. What did the lower courts do in this case? Well, BL prevailed in the lower courts. The district court granted an injunction ordering the school to reinstate her to the junior varsity cheerleading squad. And relying on Tinker, the district court found that BL's punishment violated the First Amendment because her Snapchat post hadn't caused substantial disruption at the school. The Third Circuit affirmed the judgment below, but the majority took a more categorical approach concluding that Tinker did not apply because schools had no special license to regulate student speech that occurred off campus. And critically, this created a circuit split. An earlier Fifth Circuit ruling had held that Tinker does govern off-campus student speech. So the court was obliged to step in to resolve the split. And what did the Supreme Court say? The principal question before the court was whether public schools can regulate speech that is substantially disruptive to the work or discipline of the school when that speech occurs off campus. Writing for an eight to one majority, Justice Breyer affirmed the lower court's ruling for BL, but rejected the Third Circuit's categorical approach to Tinker. As he explained, BL's speech was not sufficiently disruptive to the school environment to be regulable in this case, but other cases might present speech that was more obviously within the school's regulatory ambit. So to determine what off-campus speech was subject to school regulation, the court provided no bright line rules, but instead identified three factors that lower courts should consider in future litigation. Paul, what was the thinking of the court? Well, the court walked through the factors that Melissa alluded to, and then it basically rejected the justifications that the school offered for restricting the speech. And they really fell into two basic camps. One, the school suggested it was trying to promote civility or prohibit vulgarity. And the court rejected that both because the school was not making some sort of concerted overall effort to protect civility. And none of the speech at issue here uh, specifically identified particular school officials. 
And then with respect to the school's argument that the speech was disruptive, the court concluded that there just wasn't sufficient evidence of a real disruptive effect on the school in this case. Paul, what are the takeaways from this case? So I'd say the takeaways are two. One, I do think it's going to make this case will make it much harder for schools to regulate speech that occurs off campus. One way to understand the majority opinion is that it took many of the arguments that the plaintiff and the ACLU had argued that supported never allowing schools to regulate off-campus speech and said all those same factors mean that schools will hardly ever get to regulate speech off-campus. And so I do think in cases where schools regulate off-campus speech, they're going to face a heavy burden. The second thing I would emphasize is I don't think this case definitively answers the question of whether schools can hold students who volunteer to participate in extracurricular activities to a higher standard than the general school population. That was an argument that was raised by the Solicitor General, and I don't think the court definitively resolved it. Melissa, what's your take? This was obviously a very important case. It was the first time since Tinker in 1969 that the court resolved a case in favor of a student in a school speech situation. Nevertheless, I think the case actually prompts more questions than it answers. And going forward, courts are really going to have to grapple with these three factors and apply them in a more complicated public school context, um, one in which social media is endemic and one in which the prospect of expanded remote learning means that the traditional boundaries of the school campus are no longer so clearly demarcated. Paul, let's move to Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta and how donor disclosure requirements impact the First Amendment right to free association. Can you get us started on the case, please? Absolutely. This case arises out of a California law that was designed to redress the possibility of charitable fraud. For a number of years, this law required charities to submit to the state a federal form that listed identifying information about their major donors. For a number of years, the state actually didn't rigorously enforce this law. A number of charities blocked out identifying information on the forms they submitted, and the state didn't vigorously enforce it. But they began enforcing it in 2010, and as soon as they did, a number of charities brought a First Amendment challenge to the law, saying these disclosure requirements violated their uh, First Amendment rights. The case then ping-ponged around in the lower courts with the district court ruling in favor of the plaintiffs, only to be reversed by the Ninth Circuit. And after a couple of rounds of the case going back and forth, the Supreme Court took the case up and ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and against the state by a six to three vote in an opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts. Paul, take us through the majority's reasoning. So the majority's reasoning really first focused on what level of scrutiny applies in these kinds of disclosure cases. And the court clarified that what it called exacting scrutiny applies. And the court indicated that that's a level of scrutiny somewhere between intermediate scrutiny and strict scrutiny. And most particularly, the court clarified that in applying exacting scrutiny, although the courts would not demand that the law be the least restrictive alternative, the court made crystal clear that narrow tailoring analysis applies. The court then applied that exacting scrutiny test and that narrow tailoring requirement to strike down the law 
largely on the grounds that the state used this law not principally to investigate targeted charities where they thought there was a problem, but required all charities to uh, submit these forms. And then there were many essentially narrow, more narrowly tailored options, such as subpoenaing the records of particular charities where there was a suspicion of fraud. So in a nutshell, the court thought that applying narrow tailoring, the California law failed that test. Melissa, what about the dissent? How did they view the case? Well, first, let me note that despite claims that this was a term where the court was less ideologically driven, this case actually broke along traditional ideological lines with the six conservative justices ruling against the state and the three more liberal justices siding with California and those disclosure requirements. Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent, which was joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, and her dispute with the majority really was about the sequencing of the First Amendment analysis. As she explained, Past precedents had required that to establish a cognizable burden on their associational rights, plaintiffs must first plead and prove that disclosure will likely expose them to objective harms, such as threats, harassment, or reprisals. The majority's reasoning, she concluded, departed from those requirements and that it did not require evidence of a burden before moving on to the narrow tailoring prong of the analysis. She also argued that the majority's decision departed from the traditional approach to First Amendment challenges, which required the court to consider whether the narrow tailoring that is required is commensurate with the actual burdens imposed on associational rights. And then finally, she cautioned that the majority's decision would open the door to challenges to other disclosure regimes, including those that require disclosure of donors to political campaigns. So, Melissa, what are the takeaways from the case? So the majority's disposition of this case suggests that the mere prospect of chilling association may well be sufficient to invalidate a regulation that applies to everyone. Um, But it's not clear what the difference between intermediate scrutiny and exacting scrutiny actually is here. And, And it's not clear what the term sufficient actually adds to that analysis. It's also worth noting that in this case, um, there was also another decision on the same day, Brnovich, in which the court upheld two Arizona voting restrictions that were enacted ostensibly for the purpose of preventing fraud in the electoral process. The court in Brnovich very much credited the state's interest in preventing fraud in the electoral context, whereas in this case, California's interest in preventing fraud in charitable giving really received short shrift from the majority. Paul, what are your takeaways? So I'd identify two. First, I think the court not only clarified that exacting scrutiny applies, but it clarified that exacting scrutiny is in fact quite exacting. And I think that means that there will be more of these challenges to disclosure laws across the nation filed in the coming years. The second point I'd highlight is that in some respects, you can understand this case as almost shadow boxing about challenges to disclosure in the campaign finance context that may explain the breakdown of the justices that Melissa alluded to. But I do think there's an important difference. In this case, the disclosure requirements really aren't just for the sake of disclosure or providing transparency so that the general public can see who is supporting which charities. And I think that made the narrow tailoring analysis of the majority fairly straightforward. In the campaign finance context, by contrast, you really do have disclosure for the sake of disclosure because the government's interest is in trying to make clear who is supporting which candidates. And I think that will be a different case for courts to wrestle with. 
I'll point to one final irony about that, which is in prior campaign finance cases involving challenges to contribution limits or expenditure limits, disclosure requirements were often upheld or held up as the constitutional alternative. But the decision in Bonta does suggest that those disclosure laws are also going to be subjected to fairly exacting First Amendment scrutiny. Melissa Paul, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you for joining us. This podcast was paid for at U.S. taxpayer expense.